Just a heads up that this episode contains references to graphic racism. On this season, we'll be exploring the moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories that shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Drugs known as bath salts being blamed for a gruesome scene in Miami. This is crack cocaine. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones, and it's murdering our children. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? When a security camera caught footage of a 31-year-old Florida resident crouched over a bearded homeless man, gouging out his eyes and actually eating his face, the news and social media quickly dubbed him the Miami Zombie. At the end of the 18-minute attack, police shot and killed him and then claimed in interviews that he was most likely possessed by the newest drug epidemic, bath salts. A few years later, a young man stabbed a couple in their suburban home and then was found by a neighbor eating the face of the husband. He was largely speculated to have been under the influence of a new synthetic drug called Flocka. The problem was that these two men were not under the influence of those drugs, or any drugs at all, aside from a trace amount of marijuana. Nonetheless, these stories have become living, breathing manifestations of the worst kind of hysterical drug rhetoric, of zombies and monsters and subhuman animals, aggressors with superhuman strength and an imperviousness to police bullets. The news is a dramatic rolling marquee of drug horror stories, promises that these substances truly threaten the good sweethearts of the suburbs and the heartland, all while pharmaceutical versions almost chemically identical are marketed for legal consumption to treat medical conditions. For this episode, we'll see how drug hysteria has long been manufactured by politicians with specific groups in mind, and how the language around these panics continues to inform how we think of people who use drugs right up to the present day. From opium to cocaine to marijuana to LSD to PCP to crack to meth, this dramatic language also expresses America's centuries-long anxiety of the other and the ways we literally dehumanize those who cause a threat to the established social order by marking them dangerous beasts in need of social control and even long-term imprisonment. Many of us were drafted to fight in America's war on drugs as kids and teens in the 80s and 90s by serious police officers dispatched to our classrooms with coloring books and sticker badges, ready to sign us up into a long, embittered battle that turned a public health issue into a national security threat. Up until the 20th century, America's relationship to drugs was not one that was especially fraught. It was common for common people to purchase drugs like cocaine and opium over-the-counter in products such as Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup Laced with Opium. It wasn't until different drugs began to represent populations that the dominant culture considered a threat, most often racial others, that drugs became a focus of political crusades. 
First, it was Chinese laborers that were accused of undermining working-class whites with cheaper labor. And the first ever drug laws were passed in San Francisco in 1875, as politicians made claims that Chinese men were luring and raping white women by drugging them with opium. At the turn of the century, as the southern states adjusted to the outlawing of slavery, a new media picture of the cocaineized black man rose alongside the height of lynching and legalized segregation, of voting laws designed to disempower former slaves, and something called black codes, which doled out harsher punishments for black people accused of the same crimes as white people. Cocaine proved an easy symbol for the fear of these free black folks and what their freedom meant for white supremacy. An article called Negro Cocaine Fiends Are the New Southern Menace, written for the New York Times in 1914, claimed that cocaine gave black men a kind of superhuman strength. And more than that, an imperviousness to the bullets of police, as well as better accuracy when shooting guns. Newspapers reported that police departments had actually been forced to increase the caliber of their guns from 32 to 38. Like with opium and the Chinese, the media and politicians also painted black men on cocaine as sexual threats to white women. That same year, these racial fears solidified themselves into major legislation, and the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act was passed. While debating the law, lawmakers claimed that the drug made minority groups into social dangers, linking opium to the Chinese, cocaine to drug-crazed, sex-mad Negroes, and marijuana to the Mexicans. Dr. Hamilton Wright testified that drugs caused black people to rebel against white authority. Dr. Christopher Koch of the State Pharmacy Board of Pennsylvania testified that, quote, most of the attacks upon the white women of the South are the direct result of the cocaine-crazed Negro brain. This early symbolic imagery of the monstrous other settled deep into the American subconscious, lending itself to political fear-mongering for the next 150 years, and in a series of escalations of policy, America would create the association of people who use drugs as violent criminals and punish them as such. Harry Anslinger had a vision of what he wanted America to be like. In the 1920s, Anslinger had made his living hunting down rum runners during Prohibition until President Hoover appointed him to lead the brand new Federal Bureau of Narcotics. But when alcohol became legal again, Anslinger worried over the fate of his job. He was also vehemently racist and was angered by what he saw as the degrading of his culture by racial mixing. The lives of jazz men, he said, reeked of filth. He had an idea to take care of two problems at once. Just as he knew that prohibition had helped address the problem of poor Irish immigrants who were fleeing a famine, accused of causing crime, of raping women, and taking away jobs from U.S. citizens, so too could marijuana become a similar moral panic in his own favor. Anslinger wanted to criminalize more than just cannabis, as it was known at the time, but weed proved an easy, inanimate scapegoat that could become, essentially, a metaphor for all the parts of the changing culture he didn't like. He said things like, quote, Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. There are a hundred thousand total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. 
He continued to link the drug to vulnerable white women, saying, quote, colored students at the University of Minnesota partying with female students, smoking and getting their sympathy with stories of racial persecution. Result, pregnancy. Anslinger began targeting specific black musicians, especially Billie Holiday, which we'll get into more later in the episode. As an influx of Mexican immigrants also entered the U.S. and again sparked a national anxiety of job loss, Anslinger took a page from the Opium Handbook. Under his advisement and through his close personal relationship with yellow journalist and media mogul William Randolph Hearst, newspapers ran headlines like, Mexican crazed by marijuana runs amok with butcher knife. Tactically, he began using the term marijuana in order to link it to Mexicans more overtly. To stir fear and public support, he also linked marijuana to a favorite vulnerable group, white kids and teenagers, saying it could cause anything from insanity to suicide to murder. And through the 30s, several propaganda films about marijuana were produced, with titles like Assassin of Youth and, most famously, Reefer Madness, originally called Tell Your Children. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Doctors and pharmacists and scientists were telling Anslinger that his claims about marijuana were completely bogus. But he continued to rail against his dissenters as unscientific. Quote, if the hideous monster Frankenstein came face to face with the monster marijuana, he would drop dead of fright he boomed. Through these exaggerations and propaganda, Anslinger was able to get something called the Marijuana Tax Act signed by President Roosevelt, which essentially made the drug illegal. And in the very first year under the new law, black people were three times more likely than whites to be arrested for possessing weed, while Mexican people were nine times more likely, despite the fact that white people were using at a similar or even higher rate. When Richard Nixon entered the White House in 1969, he too saw an opportunity and would be the first president to declare the official war on drugs. Substances like marijuana and LSD, which had long been charged with promoting racial tolerance, were now also seen as promoting the communist ideologies and moral relativism of the anti-establishment hippies. The country was awash in an anti-war, anti-segregation counterculture that, like Harry Anslinger in the 1930s, contradicted the country that Nixon and his administration wanted to see. A retired Nixon domestic policy advisor told a journalist in 1996 that, quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be against the war or blacks, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. Nixon dramatically increased the size and presence of federal drug control agencies and pushed through measures such as mandatory sentencing and no-knock warrants. He created the scheduling system for drugs as we know it, and he placed marijuana as a Schedule One, despite his appointed commission recommending it be decriminalized in small amounts. At the time, cocaine was considered vogue and even elite, named the Champagne of Drugs by the New York Times. It was appearing most commonly in the privacy of middle and upper-class homes. 
By converting the drug from powder to rock form, it allowed dealers to sell smaller quantities, while smoking it provided a more intense high. This form of the drug, popularly called crack, however, is chemically identical to powder cocaine. It's simply the route of administration that's different, and it gives the illusion of it being a more dangerous drug altogether. This cheaper version soon became accessible in some low-income urban areas, as an even more hardline administration took its place in the American government. When Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. won the 1980 presidential race, they did so with the campaign slogan, Let's Make America Great Again. And Reagan's new right policies were all framed around the idea that an individual status was the result of individual moral choices. And things like poverty and unemployment, urban decay, educational inequality and crime were seen as issues of deviant, weak individuals who had forgone their chance at the American dream. He rapidly defunded programs that supported the poor and famously used rhetoric that presented poor people as criminals. Congress passed something called the Military Cooperation with Civilian Law Enforcement Act, and the lines between the police and the military began to blur. SWAT teams were created. Military equipment was used at the local, county, state, and federal levels. Not only that, but in the Latin American wars, the Reagan administration funded the Contras in Nicaragua, groups that were largely responsible for the large influx of cocaine coming into the U.S. Congress soon doubled down on the existing war on drugs, passing the now infamous Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which set penalties a hundred times harsher for crack than for powder cocaine. Those convicted of a drug felony for crack also lost access to voting rights, housing rights, and employment possibilities, which then contributed to rising crime rates. Reagan's harsh anti-drug policies not only led to exploding prison populations, but they also blocked expansion of syringe exchange programs and other harm reduction policies that could have prevented thousands from contracting HIV and dying during his time in office. At the same time, Ronald's wife Nancy Reagan started her U.S. tour, sitting in classrooms with children ages K through 12, teaching them famously to just say no. TV shows like Different Strokes and Punky Brewster made very special episodes using the Just Say No campaign. Nancy Reagan appeared in that episode of Different Strokes as well as an episode of Dynasty. She participated in a 1985 rock music video called Stop the Madness alongside the most random surprise pop-up guests like LaToya Jackson, Whitney Houston, David Hasselhoff, Kim Fields, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Funding was given to a new program called Drug Abuse Resistance Education, founded by well-known Law and Order LAPD Police Chief Daryl Gates. Gates stated that his intention was to establish a better relationship between young people and law enforcement, while educating them about things like self-esteem and respect, but most explicitly, teaching abstinence from drugs. 
it's likely that a majority of those listening now had contact with at least one D.A.R.E. officer at some point, or saw ads starring Darren the Lion and wore classic D.A.R.E. t-shirts or gold foil badges proudly declaring our status as young drug officers. Famous cartoon characters from competing production companies and actors of all different stripes joined the campaign, and D.A.R.E. became one of the most famous government programs ever implemented. It's... it's me! This is my future? It is if you don't get off those drugs! You use, you lose! Listen to us! We care about you, Mikey! What's up, Doc, is your life, if you don't cut it out. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. We've all heard the term crack baby, which refers to a child born to a mother addicted to crack cocaine. Children that were not only seen as sickly and pathetic, but also as a potential drain on national resources and a violent threat to other children. A 1989 column that was widely referenced after its publication said that crack created, quote, a bio-underclass, a generation of physically damaged cocaine babies whose biological inferiority is stamped at birth 
destroying the unique brain functions that distinguish human beings from animals. Even years later, news networks and talk shows ran specials as these children aged into kindergarten about what these potentially monstrous, animal-like, and violent five-year-olds were going to do to the school system, their peers and teachers, and the nation at large. The experts warned that children like Ed would be coming. They told the schools to prepare for the worst. There is not a child he has not attacked. He has not drawn blood. The eye, the face, everybody has come with just bloody. Today, there are thousands of school-aged children just like Ed, taking their seats in classrooms across America. Science has further shown that crack only has a minor effect on pregnancy, far, far less than alcohol or tobacco. Hasty research in the 1980s didn't account for the other factors that often accompany hard drug usage that likely led to infant health issues, like poverty, lack of access to health services and mental illness, issues that were all made worse by policies of the 1980s, issues that were blamed on crack cocaine. More than 80% of the people arrested during this time for crack were black, despite using both cocaine and crack at similar or even lesser rates than white people. These same policies certainly continued and elaborated under George Bush Sr., but in case you think this is a strictly Republican issue, it was under Bill Clinton that these laws were expanded even further with Three Strikes You're Out, which handed out life sentences for petty crimes, leading to the most people imprisoned in U.S. history. In 1996, Congress also took away lifetime access to food stamps and welfare to those convicted of drug felonies, often impoverished women with children. The number of people behind bars for nonviolent drug offenses increased from 50,000 in 1980 to over 400,000 in 1997. And to this day, the United States still incarcerate people at the highest rate in the world. Daryl Gates, the founder of D.A.R.E., who I mentioned earlier, was forced to resign his post following the L.A. riots that broke out in 1991, sparked by the acquittal of the white police officers involved in the videotaped beating of Rodney King, a black man who had led police on a high-speed chase and was accused of having the superhuman strength of PCP, which was said to justify the extreme force the officers used. PCP was yet another fearful drug of the Nixon administration that apparently led to jumping off buildings, tearing out your own eyes, and murdering in animalistic cold blood, all charges that were vastly exaggerated or made up altogether. The drug was later found not to be in Rodney King's system, but the narrative of the drug-addled monster had already been told and was easily accepted on the tail end of the crack panic, as students everywhere were submerged in the fearful stories of the anti-drug ad campaigns and school programs. Studies around Gates's D.A.R.E. program would go on to show similar results to abstinence-only sex ed. D.A.R.E. didn't keep kids from doing drugs. In fact, some studies have shown that kids who go through D.A.R.E. are actually more likely to do them. Similar problems arise to abstinence-only sex ed. When teenagers do inevitably experiment, they don't have the proper education to prevent any associated harms. Also, it turns out that those foil badges were more real than we thought. Kids have been encouraged since 1983 to inform police about family members they know who might be doing drugs, which has actually led to a number of arrests. Let's go back to the 1970s when Elvis Presley, a man who had ironically two decades before become that very symbol of communist breakdown and wayward youth, had flipped and was ready to become the ultimate narc. 
He showed up at the White House with his big sculpted hair and a purple velvet suit, gold belt, and a Colt 45. He had recently written to Nixon requesting a meeting. I am Elvis Presley, and I admire you and have great respect for your office. The drug culture, the hippie elements, the students for a democratic society, Black Panthers, etc., do not consider me as their enemy, or as they call it, the establishment. I call it America, and I love it. Sir, I can and will be of any service I can to help the country out. So I wish not to be given a title or an appointed position. I can and will do more good if I were made a federal agent at large, and I will help out by doing it my way through my communications with people of all ages. First and foremost, I am an entertainer, but all I need is the federal credentials. I have done an in-depth study of drug abuse and communist brainwashing techniques, and I am right in the middle of the whole thing where I can and will do the most good. Elvis told Nixon how he wanted to become a kind of secret agent in order to help crack down on drugs and black activism. The slightly delusional Elvis was ready to go undercover to bust the same communities whose music he had previously used to become famous. Nixon did give him an honorary badge, clarifying multiple times that it didn't come with any special privileges, but apparently Elvis went on believing it was real for a while. He died seven years later of a prescription drug addiction after severely abusing legally prescribed opioids for years. And yet he wholeheartedly believed and continued to state as such that he was not the same as the drug addicts that he wanted to bring down. Way back in 1939, black singer Billie Holiday publicly struggled with mental illness, childhood trauma, and a heroin addiction. She began performing a song called Strange Fruit, with haunting lyrics about black lynchings in the American South. The first time Anslinger busted Billy for possession, she begged the judge to send her to a hospital to help her kick her habits, but instead she was sent to serve a year in prison. When she was released, her cabaret license was suspended indefinitely, meaning she could no longer perform in jazz clubs, meaning she could no longer sing Strange Fruit to the public, or any song at all. Even as she lie close to death in the hospital 20 years later, the rabid Anslinger continued his obsession. His officers pushed into her hospital room and apparently found a tiny amount of heroin, handcuffed her, took her mugshot, fingerprinted her, and questioned her without her lawyer present. They confiscated her comic books, record player and radio, all the flowers and chocolate she had been given, and kept two cops stationed at the door at all times as Billy, for unknown reasons, was taken off the life-saving methadone and went into critical heroin withdrawal. As fans began to hear of what was happening, protests broke out outside the hospital with signs that read, Let Lady Live. The Reverend Eugene Callender, a man who had built a clinic in his church for heroin addicts, made a speech begging police to let Billy come and get proper medical treatment at his facility, a concept that Billy herself had touted for those living with addiction in her memoir written a few years before. Instead, Billy Holiday died in that hospital bed, with Anslinger's final comment being, For her, there will be no more good morning heartache. 
Anslinger was deeply threatened by the popularity of strange fruit and by the power shifts that were happening around him. Though the rhetoric around drugs and race has softened somewhat since Anslinger's time, it still has similar effects in regards to incarceration. Like the marijuana arrests in the 1930s, black people are currently 3.6 times more likely to be arrested for selling drugs and 2.5 times more for drug possession, even though white people are statistically the same or even more likely than black people to take and sell drugs. And when black people are convicted of drug crimes, they generally face longer prison sentences for the same offenses, according to an official report from the U.S. Sentencing Commission, just like they once did during the time of the Black Codes. The drug arrests of the Hispanic community and disproportionate charges are also seen in similar numbers. During Prohibition, it was Irish Catholic immigrants and their culture of alcohol that threatened both the jobs of U.S. citizens and the Protestant society at large. In the 60s and 70s, it was hippies and war protesters with their weed and acid that threatened the status quo. Ecstasy, a drug I remember promised to put holes in my brain instantly, was popular among the stigmatized gay culture of the 80s and 90s, and meth has continued to demonize the rural poor. As you can see, race isn't the only determining factor in what kind of drugs are made out to be dangerous and in need of control, but it has certainly had the most dire effect on communities of color. As we've covered, it's sometimes hard to know where moral panics come from, seeming to conjure up from the collective subconscious of the most nervous Americans and then feasted on by hucksters, moral crusaders, and sensationalist media. But in the case of drugs, it seems safe to say that these panics are manufactured by those who have a vested interest in using the symbology as a means to an end preying on the public's fear of the loss of control that drugs promise and the potential future they could represent if the bad habits and problems of the lower classes start to poison the safety of a more affluent America as suburban moms whisper urban legends about fentanyl residue left on the handles of their shopping carts and worry that LSD might be snuck to their children in the form of temporary tattoos. It's become more and more obvious that the war on drugs has been a massive failure, costing taxpayers a total of $1 trillion, that's $3.3 billion a year in incarceration costs alone, while the private sector profits off the labor of the prisoners who are paid on average 86 cents a day. While the policies have had virtually no effect on stopping the use of illegal drugs, the selling of illegal drugs, or drug overdoses. It's clear from our history that the threat of prison doesn't deter people from using drugs. Substance use disorder is defined as using a substance despite the threat or the realization of negative consequences, and so any kind of tough penalty-based approach is just destined to fail. Many reformers call for the legalization and regulation of all substances, as was recently done in Portugal, a country that has seen massive success in reducing drug-related death, incarceration, and infection rates by treating drug addiction as a medical issue instead of a criminal one. By rehumanizing those previously seen as monsters or animals, as subhuman, as other, they have been able to find a great deal more success than we have. Not even once, we are told, because many drugs get you instantly hooked the first time you try them. In reality, well over 95% of people who try drugs never end up using them problematically. The wild symptoms of each new drug panic mimic the last, from the time of reefer madness to the Facebook shares about the Miami zombies' uncontrollable attack. But as we've seen, Politicians have long created stories to justify the degrading state of the union, to justify harmful policies that 
further disenfranchise the poor and racial minorities while also providing the media with endless sensational headlines. Drugs have long stood in as an easy excuse to blame for the systematic problems of poverty, mental illness, and crime, an easy stamp to mark what politicians and those in power don't want to deal with, to mark the people they don't want to deal with. All of the social and economic problems that drugs act to cover up are also some of the main reasons that people turn to drugs. And so the cycle continues on and on. The news media told us that bath salts and flocka impart superhuman strength and immunity to pain and that they create serious threats to police officers and statements like bloody, naked, and hallucinating. They fight their demons and anybody near them, walking through bullets, snapping off taser prongs, growling like caged animals. Even now, we don't know what turned those men into sudden cannibals. Instead, we choose to believe in the simple answer, that drugs caused it all. We former dare kids may enjoy cackling now on social media at the coming drug-induced zombie apocalypse, but it's time to really decide what to make of this war. From Skylark, this was American Hysteria. Next time on the show... Our season finale will take a look at the very American tradition of the end of the world, how it's informed our national psychology since the Puritans preached from the pulpit, right up through my own adolescence in the long shadow of the 2012 Mayan apocalypse. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Assistant produced by Derek Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Combo Studios, with voice acting by Will Rogers, and thank you to my new research assistant, Riley Smith, and to Sarah Deutsch for advising on this episode. Head on over and leave us a review if you haven't already, and please follow us on social media. We're trying to entertain you over there, too. If the world doesn't end first, how are your survival skills? Good luck out there. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.